Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. I found it helpful through the years when something unusual and strange and somewhat threatening at times happens to look first to Scripture uh, to see if there is something similar in the pages of Scripture. And I think we, we find that throughout Scripture, how God has delivered His people and worked among His people in adverse circumstances. And we take great trust and hope in that. But also, I, I like to look back through the pages of history in church history, what, what was similar to what we're experiencing or what even exceeded that? And for some time, I've, I've had it on my heart that, you know, we could look at our church and look at a lot of needs we have. Uh, we need this. We need some new Sunday school classes to broaden our structure. We need... Uh, to find the worship leader that God has for us. We, we need to repair our roof from every direction we find needs. But our, I've come to understand the, the only thing that can move us forward as a church is a fresh touch of God in revival here. That's our greatest need. So how has God brought that about in the past? Well, we would immediately, and I think accurately, as Robert mentioned a moment ago, the key is prayer. But what is it that takes that, that prayer to a deeper level, to a, a desperate level of not just talking to God, but crying out to God in desperation for his intervention? There are there are things God has used historically to drive people to that, that point. For instance, poverty. Poverty has been a motivator. Back in 1857 and 58, we have what's called the, the prayer revival. It was led by not preachers, but lay people, businessmen. It was in the midst of financial collapse in the United States and a lot of ungodliness running rampant. And in the midst of all of that turmoil of, of poverty and the threat of poverty, people turned their hearts to God and this man named Jeremiah Lanfear established a prayer meeting during the noon hour. And I won't go into all the details, but from that prayer meeting grew prayer meeting after prayer meeting where businessmen all over the United States were gathering to pray during the noon hour, and thousands upon thousands of people were coming to Christ. So sometimes it's, it's poverty or the threat of poverty that drives us to pray like that. Sometimes it's persecution where there's a, a threat and it, it drives the church to cry out to God. And not just in church history, but currently, there is an amazing awakening that's happening in our world in places where the church has been driven underground, where people's lives are on the line for their faith and pagan Religious people are turning to Christ by the millions. It's just not reported because it's all happening under God's eye and not necessarily the media's eye. Isn't that wonderful? But sometimes persecution drives us to prayer. I remember after 9-11, people that had no regard for God, politicians that would stand against anything that's good and godly, uh, attending prayer meetings and asking God's blessing upon our nation. I remember a, a nominal church member calling our church in New Mexico and saying, what are we going to do? 
And I said, what do you mean? And I said, are, are we gonna have a special prayer service? And I said, yes, we have one every Wednesday night. And we cry out to God to do a fresh work in our land. But do you remember how attendance increased, Bible sales increased, and then it went back after persecution, but some people were genuinely converted in the midst of that, and churches, some were strengthened. Other times, political unrest drives people to that desperate praying during the Civil War. There was a great revival going on in both camps of the armies at battle in the Civil War. People were coming to Christ because of the political unrest and the realization of how mortal they were. We could go on with the list with panic, but also plague. When I was pursuing my doctoral studies, I really was mesmerized for a season with the Puritans, and I still love to read them, but I just really was, was digging into that, and I was wondering, the Puritans in, in England particularly, that, that from so much rich writing came from them, was there a, an awakening or a revival around that? Would that be considered a revival or an awakening? And and the more I looked, you, you just can't find any statistics. You can't find a, a lot about what was going on there. But I do know there was a, a desperate desire for genuine working of the Holy Spirit among them. I'm pulling out my phone to read this to you. What I discovered was there was a powerful work of God through people like uh, Thomas Watson and, I mean, so many names, uh, William Gurnall. But here's the circumstances. In 1665 alone in that year, 68,000 people died of a plague in London. That was in one city. 68,000. The population was approximately half a million people. Some of you have already done the math. They, they lost over a tenth of their population. That meant one out of 10 on average, were victims of this plague. In the midst of this plague, people were, were turning to Christ. There was also conflict and turmoil in the church, but it turned the church back to Christ. And so what happened amidst that plague is they were having thousands of converts as well in London and surrounding areas because it was affecting beyond London but they were burying their converts, so to speak. Can you imagine that? Mighty move of God, people coming to Christ, and perhaps dying before the next worship service. God has used that. Create an urgency and a readiness to hear the gospel and for the church to get right. Those are some of the things throughout history that have, have prompted that desperate, deep concern and cry for a fresh move from God. But amidst all of those seasons of revival and awakening in history, there was a, a concern about, is it, is it real or am I just religious? Because religion just became not enough. Just like the co commercial, just good enough is not good enough. And so I want us to consider 
a revival question today. Are you real or just religious? Are you real or just religious? I cringe when somebody refers to me or my family as being religious. I hope they can see more than just that. We have a relationship with Christ that shapes everything about us, but that would be my desire. And so amidst chaos and political unrest, amidst persecution, etc., in Matthew chapter 3, you find God raising up a messenger that would call those people that were religious to come back to him, would call people to come to the kingdom that did not know God in a personal way and would prepare them to come to know Christ. And I think in the passage we're gonna look at today, the, the sounding question is to the crowd assembled, are you real or are you religious? And I think it challenges us to ask the same question of ourselves. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter three, And our text will be verses 6 and following. But let's go ahead and read from verse 1 through verse 10. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John himself with clothes, clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, All the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he, John the baptizer, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. Let's pray together. Father, how easy it is for us to fool each other, but to forget that we can't fool you. how we try to forget at times that you look upon the heart, you see and know all. Father, I pray that as we dig into this passage that we would not look with pride at those that were condemned by John the Baptist, but that we would take to heart the words that you spoke through him. And that you would challenge us, Father, please challenge us to look at our own hearts and spiritual condition. So, Father, I pray that you would please speak through me. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I, I don't think it's just a physical reality when it mentions that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. That was talking about a physical location. It was very barren and dry. But I believe it could also be symbolic, not that that's what the Holy Spirit intended, but it can be symbolic in our minds of the day in which John the Baptist preached. There was like a desert amidst the religion in their day. He was well aware of that, having grown up the son of a village priest and somehow having an understanding of sincerity and insincerity amidst the ranks of some of the people. He was blessed with a father and a mother who were known to be devout, people who loved God and were blessed by him because of their faithfulness to him, but perhaps he was aware of some of the shortcomings of many others. And it, in many ways, was like a desert or a wilderness. I don't know if you've tried to share your faith or present the gospel to someone who experienced what appears to be a false conversion before. Someone who says, well, you know, I'm Baptist. My great-great-grandmother was Baptist. My great-grandparents were Baptist. My mom and dad were Baptist, etc. And so I'm, I'm Baptist. Okay, but what about your condition spiritually? Well, I'm Baptist. I went to vacation Bible school. I did all that when I was a kid. I, I, I understand the Bible. You know, anybody that says they understand the Bible, that's a big red flag, isn't it? Because I, I don't completely understand the Bible, and I don't think any of us do. I, I prayed a prayer, I signed a card, I, I was baptized, and I'm good. So when was the last time you went to church? Well, it was a few weeks after I was baptized. And then you try to talk to them about the gospel. It's like they're, they're, they've gotten a... vaccination that prevents them from getting the gospel. Vance Havner, the great evangelist of years ago, used to say there were a lot of people I could have led to Christ, but they joined the church before I got to them. Being in church and being in Christ are two different things. And so some of the hardest places for People to see a, a work of God is in a place where God once moved but has been pushed to the fringe and ignored by generation after generation. And so many places in the world where we would read in history about great outpourings and multitudes coming to Christ, we, we would find in our day that place is a spiritual barrenness. One of those places would be places like London, England, where you see churches used for a variety of things. You see prominence growing of pagan religions, and we're just a few generations behind them. As they have gone, we are headed that way. And in many ways, we, we live in a spiritual wilderness. People that are responding to false gospels but thinking they've got the real thing. Kind of like the Dead Sea when Deanne and I visited there. Some of the most beautiful flowers grew right out there outside the Dead Sea, but it was all just death where there should be life. And so that's what John the Baptist was dealing with. He was called of God to step into this spiritual desert and wilderness that had all the trappings and all of the essential features that one would expect where there would be spiritual life. And even people who were respected for maintaining 
religion without a relationship with God. Hence, it tells us in verse 6, and the people had come out and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So here's the first of seven revival questions that center on that main question, are you real or are you just religious? The first question would be this. Are you concealing your sin or confessing your sin? Immediately, John the Baptist confronts these religious people and these political power players with their sin before God because many were coming and confessing their sin and their need for God, they were responding to his message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They had come out with a mixture of motives. And so he confronts them and says, who warned you to come out and to see what's going on basically? One translation translates that question this way. Offspring of vipers, who gave you a private confidential hint that you should be fleeing from the wrath about to break at any moment? So he confronts them. Why? Because we know as we read the gospels that many of these religious leaders were concealing sin in their heart. They were eaten up with hypocrisy. They were thinking unkind thoughts, and Jesus would reveal them at the dinner table at times, remember? They were concealing their sin, but those who openly confessed their need for God and confessed their sin and were baptized were taking a step toward the kingdom while these men were staying at arm's length from the kingdom of heaven. There's a passage that's very helpful in Psalm 32 about confessing our sin. Although it's from the Old Testament, it has great application for us still in the New Testament. It says in Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or charge iniquity and whose spirit there is no guile. David goes on to say, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Have you ever been there with unconfessed sin in your life? Then he says in verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you in my iniquity, I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a great, great testimony. And could you not say amen to that testimony? Those times where we were not struggling to have a relation with God, but struggling because we lacked fellowship with God, having belonged to Christ, and, and that, that heaviness was upon us, that drought and that depression of just not walking with God and being in full and free fellowship with Him, not just desiring that our sins would be covered, but that He would cleanse us from all unrighteousness as the Scripture promises. But too many times it's easy to conceal our sin Rather than confessing our sin, we're not any different than Adam and Eve dressing up in outfits of fig leaves trying to cover our sin. But one thing happens in the midst of a move of God in revival, and I'm praying that this would happen among us, and that is we'd be overwhelmed with the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. I've come to understand what these signs mean when it says clean dirt. 
But doesn't that sound strange to someone who doesn't understand the concept? How do you have clean dirt? Well, how do you have respectable sin? How do you have small sin? How do you have mm, sin and, oh, sin? How do you distinguish? Well, in the eyes of God, there is a great sinfulness to sin, a, a horrid ugliness, a heinousness about it. And when we walk close to God and, and when we come to understand his purity and his majesty and we get closer to him, the closer we get to God, the more sinful sin appears to us. And it causes us to desperately turn from that sin and repent. And so that's what's happening here. On the one hand, there are people recognizing the sinfulness of their sin because of the urgency of John's message. And then there are others coming out to be a critique messenger of what he's really saying and dissecting that rather than really considering how sinful sin is. And I would think in my life, the most sinful sins I know are the ones that are in my heart as a child of God who worships and preaches each week. But they were concealing their sin, not confessing their sin. I, I ask you, do you have sin in your life that you have not confessed? Have you not come totally dependent upon Christ and confessed your sin and sinfulness and pled with him for his forgiveness? Are you concealing your sin or confessing your sin? The second question that this text causes us to consider, we find in verse 7 as well, but when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, brood of vipers. Now, if, if, if you were of that day and you frequented the temple and synagogues, you might think that John would say, we are blessed today to have some very distinguished gentlemen in our midst, some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But that was not the case. He said, you brood of vipers. He wasn't trying to win friends and influence people. He wasn't trying to be seeker friendly at that point. But it caused us to ask the question, does your reputation reflect reality? Are you more concerned about a title than you are the truth? I've had people hide behind titles I, at times, am tempted to hide behind the title of pastor. Surely I'm okay, I'm a pastor, but the reality is I stand before God, all titles laid aside, and I stand before him in truth. And so here they strut up to the scene of the baptism, and he points to them and says, you brood of vipers, Why? He was pointing to the reality of their hearts, not the reputation among the people. And John wasn't eager to baptize them because John refused to baptize and immerse imposters. Now, is it strange that, that he would call them a brood of vipers? And we'll talk about what that mean, means in just a moment, but... In Matthew chapter 23, you find Jesus doing the very same thing. Woe to you, scribes, hypocrites, and Pharisees, and, and that whole idea of them being vipers is throughout that chapter. He condemns them beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 23, and, and it concludes in Matthew 23, 39 for 26 verses. 
He says over and over, woe to you, woe to you. When I read that, I ask myself, would Jesus have woes to proclaim over us? To be completely honest with you, there have been times in my life that I was convicted because the pastor you thought you had was not the pastor I am. Does that make sense? There are times the dad people think we have is not the reality. It's a reputation or an image. Husband or wife, etc. we can hide behind a reputation. We can let the things be said about us and just bask in that and almost cheer them on when in reality our heart is not right. And so here are these men bearing these titles, wearing these labels, and it's like John rips it off of them and says, look at your hearts, you brood of vipers. So I wonder, does your reputation exceed reality in your life? Does it in mine? We can just manage our reputation rather than being right with God. So that question begs to be answered, does your reputation reflect reality? Then there's a third question. Are you poisonous or have you been purified? Back to the title he gave them, you brood of vipers. Brood can be translated as it is in some translations as offspring. Not just a group of vipers, but those that have been bred by others, an offspring of vipers. It's It's not just a statement about them. It's a statement about the ones by whom they have come into being. And so they're referred to as vipers. Here's what John was very acquainted with in the desert. There were these small snakes or vipers that were easily camouflaged in the desert. They moved swiftly, were very deceitful in their hiding, and they were highly poisonous. He was being very specific in what he was saying. Here are these people in the wilderness, many of them perhaps had seen a venomous viper on their way to hear him preach, or some had looked for them as they came, knowing that that was a threat of the desert. And he chose that image to point to the men who, whom they thought were the most religious. You see, if you haven't been purified by the blood of Christ, and if you have not been forgiven of your sin, but you're playing a religious game, you're you're not just off base, you become very poisonous in the lives of other people. Because everybody's looking for an example that makes them feel better about themselves. Or an example that'll help them be able to redefine what it means to be a follower of Christ, and if we are less than what we claim to be, and we're not really real, but we're just religious, we're very poisonous in their lives because they, they catch that poison of hypocrisy from us. So these rapid movement, highly poisonous snakes, he says, you're just like that. They were maintaining a ritual and all the while headed toward wrath. Notice what it says. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who who got you to come out here? I know you're not here in your own will. You've been pushed here 
by some hidden desire and it's all about fleeing God's wrath, but they were living under his wrath, maintaining a ritual all the while. And we can do that, can't we? Some of the most ungodly people have hidden in church. Isn't that crazy? That would be the least likely place you would think, but throughout history, some of the most evil people hidden in church and worn the robes of religion, put on a show, but were very poisonous and living under the wrath of God. Now, the typical person of that day would have said, no, they're living under the smile of God. No, God was not smiling at their behavior. He was frowning, and that was being expressed through John the Baptist. All the while they were maintaining a ritual, they were headed toward God's wrath. Someone has used the image of these vipers in a dry desert where flames have began to burn through the dead and dry grass and a foliage there that is lifeless, fleeing the flames that are devouring the desert of their religious hypocrisy. That would be the picture here. It's all about to come down. The veil is about to be thrown open. Your sin is about to be exposed. You are nothing but venomous vipers, he says. So the question would be, are you poisonous or have you been purified? Has he taken your sin and removed it as far as the east is from the west? Is he daily cleansing you from all unrighteousness because he has made you right by his death and burial and resurrection? Then he goes on in verse 8, therefore... Bear fruits worthy of repentance. He was not saying just change your habits a little bit and it'll be better. He was saying fruit, something that would be produced on the outside that grew from the inside. Here's the question. Is your life marked by phoniness or fruitfulness? Jesus said in John 15, 8, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. He who abides in me and I abide in him will bear much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. In Galatians chapter 5, it says that in the life of a genuine believer who has put their trust in Christ and they are a true repenter, there will be the fruit of the Spirit. There will be those things that grow from the, out, from the inside out, not just getting things right on the outside, but getting things right on the inside by Christ and Christ alone doing that, you begin to produce the proper fruit. He was saying you need a complete change at your root so that you can produce fruit worthy of repentance because only repentance can give you the freedom to allow God to do that in your life. Have you noticed sometimes how easily artificial fruit can be confused with real fruit? I mean, there are some that it's easy to detect. But there are other times you think, well, that's, that's got to be a real piece of fruit, and it's, it's not. Not only was it artificial, but it was rotten in their lives. They had a facade without fruit. Let's say you had a fruit tree in your yard. All the other neighbors' fruit trees were flourishing and yours was not. And you were feeling rather judged and condemned by your neighbors because of your lack of a green thumb. And so you watched their trees. When the fruit began to appear, you ran to Hobby Lobby. You gathered a big bag of that type of fruit, you got Christmas uh, ornament hangers or some way to put it on your tree, and the next morning, your fruit is just as bright and nice as their fruit on their trees. 
What have you accomplished by that? Nothing. And the reality is the only person you fooled is yourself. And the only people that were impressed by your actions was Hobby Lobby because they got some money out of the deal. That's crazy. You would say that's insane. Yes, it is. And it's insane to live your life that way. It's insane to put artificial looking fruit in your life that is obvious to others. It's just a show. And that's what John the Baptist was shining the searchlight on. He was saying, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. If you are a repenter, your life ought to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he was saying. So we should always find ourselves looking at our heart. Am I producing genuine fruit in my life that is produced by the Holy Spirit through me? Is my life marked by phoniness or fruitfulness? The fifth question, do you value heritage over holiness? Notice verse 9. And do not think to yourselves. Now here, John the Baptist knows a common way people thought among the Jews. So he's pointing his finger there and say, don't, don't think that. Don't say to yourselves or think or say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, I know you can't imagine this in East Texas. These people were putting all of their focus on their heritage, not personal holiness. It, it was about who their people were. It was about the people they came from. Uh, it was about their contribution in the past and how, well, I'm a child of Abraham physically. He's my uh, ancestor. I'm his descendant, so everything must be cool with me because, oh, Abe couldn't be wrong. Reality is, God has no grandchildren. Just because I'm a believer doesn't guarantee that my boys are going to be believers and doesn't guarantee that my grandchildren are going to be believers. I, I would hope and pray that would flow in that direction and they would come to Christ, but God has no grandchildren. Every person comes to Christ on their own. Every person stands before God and gives an account of themselves, not of their heritage. And so one of the tendencies here was my father was a Pharisee, my grandfather was a Pharisee, I'm a Pharisee, and we had it right all this time. But the reality is it can be very lessening from generation to generation. You can't imagine, or maybe you can, how quickly people give me a gene genealogical lesson about their family when they hear that I'm a Baptist preacher. Oh, you're a Baptist preacher? <laughs> Man, my, I, I had a person in my past that was a great Baptist. They, they did this and that and then this and this and this. And I said, so I assume you're in church? No. But man, I, let me tell you, these people were great. They were great. Somehow that's going to cover them? No, not at all. And so here he was confronting them about that attitude. They weren't real. They were just religious they were valuing phoniness over fruitfulness, but then it even went deeper. They valued heritage over holiness. This past weekend, we spent some time with one of our sons, and he initiated a conversation about the things of God. It wasn't just an echo of what I would say it wasn't him just regurgitating something that I had said to him, but he was speaking from his overflow, the overflow of his walk with God, and I was so richly blessed. Because one of the fallacies would be there's a, a special covering over preacher's kids. 
when in reality all stand vulnerable to sin and must come to know Christ as Savior. So if you're looking at your heritage and you're here because that's what everybody else has done in your family, you need to get that right. It's not about your, your past heritage. It's about personal holiness. That's what John was telling them. Then the end of verse 9 and verse 10, they had a false security rather than full assurance. He says, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now just think about that. They had a false assurance. They had this this false security that all was well because they were born in a certain nation. They belonged to a certain tribe. They came from a certain family and they held certain offices in the religious culture of the day. And it was all a facade and empty because there was no real relationship with God. They had made a profession, but they had no possession of that which they had made a profession about. And we know from Scripture that those who have repented and come to Christ can live with great assurance. Just as was spoken about earlier, we fear nothing because of the greatness of our God. Well, then number seven. Have you been justified are you, or are you headed toward judgment? It says it there in verse 10, therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what were the exceptions? There were no exceptions. I was having a spiritual conversation with someone this past week and, and I was saying, you know, the, the thing that has angered people the most in my ministry toward me at times has been my stand upon the word of God about what true salvation looks like. And that a, a new heart and the new birth produces new life. Why? Because they're looking through the eyes of experience at the Scripture because they know someone they love and care about whom it's almost completely obvious they made a false profession of faith as a child or a young adult whenever, but never showed any evidence of having come to Christ. And they, they want us to put our stamp of approval on that and say, well, they're, they're good to go. When in reality, uh, the Scripture begs to question that. And we have to come to terms with that. And so here were men who were not justified before God. They were not exercising faith in Him. They were basking in the flattery of others they had this facade of faithfulness. But John the Baptist was saying those facades are headed for the fire, the fire symbolizing judgment. Matthew Henry makes this statement, commenting on this verse. If not fit for fruit, they are fit for fuel. Think about that. A tree can have two purposes. 
It can be fit for fruit. Or if it's dry and dead, it is fit for fuel and a fire. John the Baptist leaves no in between. You're either fruitful or you're fuel in the fire of God's judgment, no matter how religious you were. It's all about being real in your relationship with Christ. So what does all this say to us? Well, let me give you the sentence in a sermon. You're thinking, why didn't you do that in the first place? Well, here it is. Self-deception leads to self-destruction. Self-deception leads to self-destruction. So when a person answers that question honestly and finds themselves having to say, I am just religious and it's not real, then they must either get more determined in their phoniness and their hypocrisy or get right with God. But to continue in self-deception is to take yourself towards self-destruction, which is God giving you over to yourself to self-destruct and then to face his wrath and his judgment. So the question today is, are you in Christ? Well, I'm in church. I know you're in church. I am in church, but are you in Christ? We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.